Well, it's been a great weekend at Willow Park Church and uh, with the youth conference and so on. It's been amazing. And yesterday we had the Alpha Retreat Day when uh, those who'd been on the Alpha course. Remember, we had uh, uh, 76 people sign up for Alpha and the Lord has been working and moving. It's been amazing. And yesterday was the Alpha Holy Spirit Day. I don't know if you know about this. It's a day when we pray with people and I went and taught there and it was absolutely beautiful. But what was exciting? as well, that at the end of it, uh, two people gave their lives to Jesus as well, which is... um So it's fantastic. And can I encourage you that if you don't know where you fit in at Willow Park Church and where you are involved, then I'd love you to uh, do life tracks. Uh, one day next Saturday, it's a time Pastor Glenn teaches it. And it's a time where you can get involved and, um, and understand where your gifting is. If you're joining us uh, this weekend, uh, we're in the middle of a series, but it's a very special series. And if you come to our family meeting this afternoon at four o'clock uh, and, uh, and hear about all that is going on, you'll know that as a board and as, as a church leadership, we've been talking about real life, which is the vision of our church. What kind of church do we want to build and what kind of people do we want to be? And as you know, this is the seventh sermon in this series. We started off with um, which is redeemed life. We are a church that believes in the working and the power of the gospel to transform lives. And you may be a visitor here. You may not even have have faith. But let me just say to you, hey, uh, when you meet Jesus, things change. Not only do you experience the knowledge of going that you are going to live for eternity, but more than that, your life is, is changed. Why? Because of what we call theologically, that's a very big word that I love, which means all about the teaching of God, is it means that, that a great exchange has happened. That, that your sins, your failure, your record has been exchanged for his record, his life. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we could be made righteous. We could be made forgiven. The redeemed life is about the reality that the gospel still works and it changes lives. The empowered life, the E there, is to do with that amazing relationship that we have with Christ to be transformed into his image. Uh, The word we use is sanctification. That is the ongoing process by which we become like Jesus. You know that anger you've got? You know that, um, that problem with insecurity? You know that jealousy? You don't have to live with those things. Uh, You don't have to live with those issues. When you become a Christian, we become changed into the people that God meant us to be. And linked to this in the empowered life is the um, area of, of being filled with the Holy Spirit. That not only does God save us, not only does he sanctify us, but he gives us the power and the strength to live the Christian life. And um, you may not realize this, but God did not leave you alone to get on with your Christianity. He gave you and I the power of the Holy Spirit to move in God's strength and power. And he's with us. And with the empowered life is to do with the gifts. 
the mercy gifts, the word gifts, the power gifts, 19 gifts within scripture that are there for the body to engage in. In other words, you all have a role to play. Hey, we're something called Anabaptists and we believe in the priesthood of all believers. That means that you and I are equal before the living God and God has a role for every one of us. Whether you're in the marketplace or a pastor, whether you are serving at home or serving in in the community, wherever you live your life out, you are a minister of the Lord. And God has a work and a calling to do in your life. And, uh, and this is exciting. And that's why I love the, the board's vision, real life. And now we're moving on to the final two, which is an active life and a listening life. Active life is about full participation in what God has for us. And listening life is that God is calling us to be a church that is centered around prayer. And if you're new to this, or you don't quite understand all of these terms, they will become apparent as you hang around Willow Park Church, because under the redeemed life, we run Alpha. Under the, um, under the empowered life, we, we run uh, Set Free weekends. And, and under listening life, we teach you to hear God's voice in this way. And I'm going to talk to you about the active life right now. Um, and I'm going to uh, turn, if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 2 and verse 43. I've entitled uh, this uh, message, uh, The Church Where the Spirit Reigns. Now you, you may say, but now we've left the empowered life. You preached about being filled with the Holy Spirit, which I did. Uh, you're talking about the church where the spirit reigns. In this scripture, what we can understand are, are the components whereby we know and whereby the Christianity works and how it all comes together. We're going to travel back in time to the earliest moments of the birth of the church. We're going to try and understand the cultural and political situation to which Jesus arrived. What was going on? I mean, if you think today's politics are complicated, particularly this week, you know, I just want to say, stay off Facebook. Um, if, if, if you think it's complicated and you want to go back to this moment, 2,000 years ago, to the birth of the church. But let me read you a couple of verses. Verse 43 says, Everyone was amazed by the many miracles and wonders that the apostles worked. And all the Lord's followers, after they met together, they shared everything they had. They would sell their property and possessions and give the money to whoever needed it. Day after day, they met together in the temple. They broke bread together. They met in different homes and shared food happily and freely. And while praising God, everyone liked them. I like that little verse there. Everyone liked them. Isn't that nice about the church? I I would like that again, please. And each day the Lord added to their group members who were being saved. Um, This beautiful moment... And in verse 42, it says they, they spent their time learning from the apostles and they were like family to each other. 
And they also broke bread and prayed together. That's the key verse I want to share with you. If you're new to Christianity, I want to tell you what kind of church we want to be. I'm going to tell you this morning the difference that it's going to make in your life if you engage in in this journey and, and the difference that it should make in our lives. You see, when you become a Christian, you join what we talk about is the, is the fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. He says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. You know, there's a very clear picture in the church in Ephesus that when they gathered together, they were members of a household, and as a household, they were called to work together. And we are members of a house together. We're members of a church together and we have chosen to be together and to grow together and to engage in Christian worship together. But we're, and we are seen as a household. This is very important because when you're a household together, there are ways that households run and there's things that households do. Isn't that true? You know, you run your household or you have run your household. I run, we run our household. And, uh, and I would like to say, you know, very well um, at times. Sometimes it's World War Three, But other times it is, you know, it runs perfectly. The kids get up smiling. They dress themselves, brush their teeth perfectly. I mean, they're pastors' kids. Everything's wonderful. And... <laughs> And they, they, they don't walk around the house or run. My kids float. And, and, and then we go, oh, darling, have you made the lunches for everybody? And one springs up and says, I have, hallelujah, shaking her tambourine. And then uh, another one would say, Dad, I've, I've started the car and it's warming up and it's ready to go and I've cleaned your shoes. Hallelujah, daughter. And, and, and my son will come and say, I've just built a barn in the back garden. You see, my... That, is your house not like that? No, it's not, is it? No, 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 no. But we do have a way that we work together as house. We are a household. And one of the saddest things of the individualistic society is that we've, been, we've privatized Christianity and Christianity should never be privatized. You can't have, have church on your own sat in Starbucks. You can have your devotion, but we're called to be together. We're called to minister together. And so so let's look at this verse here. Teaching. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, this verse says. Now, what kind of church were they going to build? Now, let me just travel back in time. Uh, And you may not know this, but there were... At the time when Jesus arrived in Israel, there were about two million people, of which a million were probably Gentiles and a million were part of the Jewish nation. And they were ruled by the Roman overlords and, and there, were, there were four groups that, that were around. There were, and you may have heard these phrases, there was the Pharisees, and, and they, were, they were the group that were into religious purity. They were the group that were to do it right, do it correctly. 
They made up 700 extra laws. And you will, we will be blessed. And by our religious rigor and righteousness, the Messiah will come. Uh, and God will put everything right because of how well we are performing. Because we will live to every Every uh, T dotted, every, uh, every full stop. We will do everything perfectly. And they were the Pharisees. They were the religious elite of which were well respected at the time amongst the uh, a million uh, in the Jewish nation. Then they were the Sadducees. Uh, they were the kind of religious elite. They were the ones that fraternized with the Romans. They were the kind of, those of high society. Those were the kind of Downton Abbey type people. They were there, you know, they connected well. They enjoyed a relationship with the Hellenistic society. That's the Greek way of doing things. And yet at the same time, they ran the temple. It was all to do with connections. It was all to do with politics. It was all to do with who you knew and who you were part of and, and that connection. I mean, Politics doesn't change, does it? And then you had the third group at that time of Jesus' arrival called the Zealots. And they were the group that were like the the IRA of the day, the FARC. These were the revolutionary individuals who wanted to fight and wanted to be in the hills with their their rifles, uh, their swords, of course. And, and, And they were the ones that would cause problems. And they dreamed of great battles. 200 years earlier, there'd been a massive war under what they called the Maccabees. And there'd been a great revolution that under the Syrian reign but you know what they longed for that day and and in fact some of the disciples seemed to have connections with these radical groups that were bandits in the hills and then you had the Essenes these were people that were there that were religious people that would disappear into the mountains and into caves and there they would just worship God and they would write and they would be close you may have heard of something called the Dead Sea Scrolls. Probably they wrote much of those scrolls because of the way they lived. So when Jesus arrived, you had the ultra-conservative religious people. When Jesus arrived, you had the politically correct group of people. You had the revolutionaries and you had the isolationists. And Jesus had to decide to bring a new kingdom. And what would this kingdom look like? What would the people be like? What would they be like? Well, now we get an idea. Jesus taught, he ministered, he was crucified and rose again on the third day. And then something incredible happened in Acts chapter 2. An explosion. The Holy Spirit fell on the church. A group of 120 were filled with God's power. A fisherman preacher with an accent, not English, but a good accent, a Galilean accent, stepped forward and as he stepped forward, he started to preach the greatest message and at the end of that message, people were struck by the presence of God and 3,000 people became a Christians that day. 
All of these baby Christians, imagine what it would have been like. It would have been chaos. Um, You've got the Pharisees tutting. You've got the Sadducees wondering what's going to go on. You've got the Zealots thinking, shall we shoot them? You've got... You've got all of the Assyrians saying, come on, join us in our caves and, and let's write something together. And, and all of this is going on and, and all of these baby Christians. Now, why is this important? Because at this point in time, what we learn is the kind of church that Jesus initiated through the teaching of the apostles and the kind of church that he loves and wants. Let me tell you this before I get into it for a few moments. If we get this kind of church right, wonders and miracles, God's presence will work amongst his people because this is exactly what happened. And so we got to get this right. We've got to understand this. And they were baptized and and 3,000. Let's stop for a moment. Can you imagine in Jerusalem... First of all, where did they baptize them? There were 3,000 of them. Where did they baptize them? Well, Jerusalem had a lot of fountains, had a lot of uh, ponds, had a lot of large water areas around around it. But but this was going to accommodate 3,000. Those pools suddenly became full of baby Christians with their dusty bodies, their dirty feet, standing in the local pool, in the local districts, and they were being baptized one after another. The waters of Jerusalem became filthy while the power of God cleaned the hearts of a generation. And that's what we've got to love. We've got to keep believing for that. We've got to believe that in the dustiness of lives that come into our church, they will go through the waters of baptism and come out the other side cleaned, forgiven and new, those baby Christians. That we can experience that in their lives. It's it's immense what was going on. But This wasn't like our baptisms. I mean, I guess this year we baptised about 70 people. But where we're all, you know, there or down the lake and everybody claps and cheers. I'm sure that was that spirit. Let me explain this. Culturally, this was traumatic. Because the Jews watching on, they knew what baptism meant before Jesus. Baptism was a way that a Gentile could become a Jew by denouncing a past, going into certain purifications of water and would become a Jew. And to see a whole sway of 3,000 Jews being baptized in the name of Jesus would have been like a second earthquake in several Days in the center of Jerusalem because their trauma is what is going on here? I'll tell you what's going on. The church is being birthed. And there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a political, spiritual earthquake going on. Hey, you may not be a Christian, but let me tell you the Jesus movement is the greatest and the most marvelous, radical movement that has ever hit this planet. It is a movement of love. It is a movement of God's grace. And here we're at the birth of pools and, and political problems. And what, how are they, who are they going to become like? What's going to happen here? And so they're being baptized. Well, this is the word here. They devoted themselves. It's important as we jump into this 
that we understand the word devoted. Devotion means that they're sold out for this. It means they are consistent. It means it is something they do continuously. So whatever I'm going to teach you now, this is something that is so important and so significant that it's something that each one of us should do continuously in one's life. This is how powerful it is. This is how life-changing it should be. The word devotion is that sense of, of the um, National Basketball Association, that, 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 that uh, individual that has played the game, has been fouled, and walks forward and bounces the ball, and, and 80% of the time takes the shot and scores because he has been utterly devoted to practice, to getting it right. Utterly devoted to getting it right. And you know what? There are four things they were utterly devoted to. They were devoted to the word of God. They were devoted to the fellowship. They were devoted to the breaking of bread. And they were devoted to prayer. And I've told you the end of the story here. But you've been around church a long time. For many of you. And you say, I've heard this. Well, let's see. They devoted themselves. And these are landmarks on a journey. These are, they, they, it's like the early church has started a marathon. You know I did the Chicago Marathon. And when I gathered together with 40,000 other people, and we started to run, and for the first 5K, we ran a really hard. And we passed landmarks. Uh, in, 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 um, in Chicago. And after about 5K, I noticed that everybody sort of settled down, slowed down, and their breathing went, and they took a deep breath, and there were landmarks, Trump's Tower to the left, landmarks, I can't think of any other landmarks. Um, but there were lots of landmarks, uh, something called a bean. Um, and and And... And these are landmarks. Suddenly the church has exploded in its marathon and now it takes a deep breath and looks at four landmarks that keep you going. And these are the four landmarks. The landmarks that make a difference in our lives. So first of all, it's teaching. What does this mean? Well, they were, they were steady and committed and devoted and they became devoted to the apostles' teaching. They wanted to get everything. Now, what did the apostles teach? This group of people were hungry for the word of God. They had no New Testament. In fact, the biographies of Jesus hadn't been written. The uh, epistles, the letters hadn't been sent round the churches. So what did they teach? They taught the Old Testament and they taught Jesus out of the Old Testament. They would have taught the Sermon on the Mount repeatedly. They would have expressed what Jesus had taught them in the upper room and in the times that Jesus appeared to them before the ascension. They would have taught all of those things. And this group of 3,000 were enthusiastic because they were baby Christians and there needed to be a love of the Word of God. And I guess that's where we start. An active life is this, that there is a love of the word of God in our hearts. 
There's a love and a desire to consume scripture. That this book, as you grow in knowledge and learn about it, this book makes all the difference. They were hungry. They were excited. The scripture exploded at that time. The the study, I mean, the apostles must have been exhausted going from home to home. Teaching, falling into bed at, 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 at night and, and just, you know, and setting out again. And we know this, that they were doing everything they possibly could do. The first landmark is this for an active church and an active life. And you know it, but I'm going to remind you of it. Get into the word of God. You see, I want us to be a a Bible-believing church, yes. But I struggle with that. Because it's not just about believing. It's about being a Bible-living church. That's what it's about. It's about knowing it and putting it into practice. That's the kind of church we've got to be. We don't just know about prayer. We do prayer. We don't just know about evangelism. We are doing evangelism. We just don't know about fellowship. We are a church of love and of fellowship. That's the active life. And understand this. So we've got the word here. Let's move on quickly to fellowship. And, um, and understand this. I'm going to skip forward a little bit because I spent too long talking about Jewish culture. And, um, and so on. And, and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. So fellowship. So it seemed that they, they used this word fellowship. Actually, the word fellowship here, for those of you who are scholars will know. The word fellowship is... Um, hadn't been used until this point. In fact, it appears now, it's a, it's a word of, uh, of, of being, um, being together. It's a powerful, now let me just say that fellowship is not drinking punch after the service and eating a cookie. I like those things. Saturday night congregation, Pastor Steve always has Tim Hortons out there. You didn't know that, did you? And... Not Sunday morning, because that's sinful. Uh, but, but Saturday night, and people mainly rush, and they get their, their donut and, and, and coffee, and, and they stand around, and they eat their donut, and they chat. And, and last night, there was a lot of talk about, I'm told, politics in the, in the foyer. And they eat. Fellowship isn't, however nice that is, isn't punch and cookies. Fellowship, you say, well, is it Friendship. At the very least, it's biblically friendship. Not at the most. Can I say that again? Fellowship, biblical fellowship at the very least, is friendship. It's so much profound. It's so much deeper. It is, it is that, that sense of that Greek word koinona, which is fellowship, which means uh, togetherness. It means... It means a level of relationship that is profound. It's actually rooted in the idea of family. Bit of history. In the ancient world, families would work together. 
first generation, second, third generations, cousins and uncles and so on. They would work in a family unit and they would live in family clans together. When one had a problem, the family would work it out together. When another had a a problem, they would gather around and they would work it out together. In the scriptural context, it's that the church is family and we care for each other. And when one has a problem, we gather around for each other. And when you start to live like that, it starts to change. It changes our our world. It changes who we are. It changes in our journey. And it is is incredible what, what can take place. It's what I call the theology of the fridge. You've all got fridges. What do you mean? Well, how many of your friends do you have or people that if they walked into your house and they could walk up to your fridge and open it and look in what's in your fridge and then eat what's in your fridge, then, then that is, sociologists tell us, that is truly a very close friend. Or you have teenagers. Um, <laughs> but there is that deep sense of connectiveness and that, 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 that sense. You see, fellowship is that they said they, they sold what they had. Now, they didn't sell their houses. Um, it's pretty clear on that because scripture goes on to say that they met in houses and met in communities. So they didn't just, like sometimes they say, sell everything and then, and then, and then go, okay, I've I become a Christian darling. Oh, have you? Yes, 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 yes. I've sold the house and given all the money to the church. Hurrah, where are we going to live? We're going to camp down at Mission Creek. Um, it doesn't, doesn't mean that. It means... They made things available in community and they did sell that which was excess to meet needs in this young church. And the truth is this, so many of us have excess. We have far more than we need and here they were bringing like like a Palestinian family. They were bringing, they were treating each other in the same way a, a family would be treated but they weren't blood relatives but now they were relatives to the kingdom of God and they cared for each other. So this word koinona means, it means they had all things in common. It means they shared with each other. It means they met each other's needs. It means they were generous with each other and they gave to each other. And it just was wonderful. Now you might be sat there thinking, what's he going to say next? This pastor, he's not wearing white shoes, but is he going to go, now give everything to the church and let's all drink the Kool-Aid. No. See, koinona, fellowship, can only be achieved through one ingredient. Generosity and sharing can only be achieved through an ingredient that we're not talking about, but I'm going to introduce. What makes you so, so generous that you've bought a new car and the Lord speaks to you and rather than reselling that car, you see that there's somebody in need and you give that car away. 
What makes a person do that? I'll tell you what, because you can't live this way without it. It is the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that makes us generous. It's the Holy Spirit that makes us want to have people around our house. It's the Holy Spirit that says, I'm cooking this lunch and I'm going to cook this lunch and I'm going to pop it over to my neighbor because that is the Holy Spirit. You see, they weren't driven by a religious format. They were driven by the power of the Holy Spirit. And when you've got the power of the Holy Spirit, probably the biggest manifestation of the power of the Holy Spirit is not the big signs and wonders. The biggest manifestation is a generosity, a sharing church, an open church where we love each other, where we accept each other, where we spot needs. And because we're full of the Holy Spirit, all we can do is, 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 is reach out and help that person. That's, that's what the word means. You can't manufacture it. And you're going, oh, I suppose I'm going to have to give it to this person. Hallelujah. Oh, okay. Oh, I'm trying to say it makes me look good anyway. Don't even bother. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And when you are generous and you share out of fellowship, you see, fellowship at its very base is friendship and it goes higher from friendship. Now, I'm not talking about friendship in the modern culture where their friends were like, you know, which was coined by that, that, that comedy friends, you know, when we're all best mates, best friends friends and and we have a little clicky group and we all I mean we've all got close friends like that who we met at university who we worked on a job with who we grew up with that's 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 the western form of friendship but can I tell you the biblical form of friendship everybody I meet I decide that they are my friend why Because they are made in the image of God. And some of us have to get over our Western idea of friendship and just get on with loving the people around us who come across our. It's about generosity. It's about people we meet. It's about friendship. And friendship's a weird concept. But you know, it's not weird. And it gets weird when it becomes insecure and they don't like your Facebook thing. And they don't answer your call. And and friendship in the Western world has become very weird. And I want to encourage you, concentrate on the power of the Spirit and true fellowship. And you will give. It's not about what you get or yourself. Fellowship in this sense is about It's about what you give. It's about being generous. I thank God for fellowship, real biblical fellowship. I thank God that a 15-year-old boy got converted and walked into a church and people started to invite him to to their houses. An 86-year-old lady called Mrs. Richmond, she said, you come to my house on Thursday afternoon at 12 o'clock at your lunch break, I will cook you lemon tarts and I'll teach you the Bible. So I would go every Thursday for the lemon tarts. Hallelujah. Um, and she'd open a little Bible and she would, her little hands were shaking and she'd tell me something about Jesus as I stuffed my face. 
I think she did a pretty good job. And you know what? Then they said, oh, that, his mother's got converted. She's a single mom. She's a divorcee. There hadn't been a divorcee in that brethren church forever appeared. But suddenly there's a, there's a, there's a divorced woman. And the lead elder said, come to our house and have Chinese food. So we went along, me, my little brother, and my mom. And we went to this house. I mean, I've been to houses before. Uh, but went to this house and we said the lovely lunch. And we, she cooked us Chinese food. And he talked to me. I was 16 years old then about Bible school and about, about what God could do. And at the end of it, 36 years ago, at the end of wondrous Chinese food, he looked at me and said, you need to learn the Bible. And he said, you read every page in this book for me. And he gave me this very book. He gave me F.B. Myers, the Bible commentary. And I've still got this book. And for every little Bible study I led as a Sunday school teacher, I would flip to this little commentary and get my little two-minute sermon, my five-minute homily out because somebody showed me true fellowship. What are you doing? How are you participating? Oh, you go, but Pastor Phil, I've been in church all my life. You're going to preach. We need to... Study the word, because I've heard this sermon. You're going to preach, we need to fellowship together. You're going to preach, we need to break bread and not forsake the breaking of the uh, bread at the table. And then you're going to preach about, we need to be at the prayer meeting. This is so humdrum. I've heard this. I've heard it. It is humdrum. It is humdrum. When you do not have the living spirit driving your faith. It is boring when you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus. That's not the kind of church we are building. It's about being activated. It is not humdrum, my friends, to gather. It said they broke bread. And I've got to land this now. And I've, got, I've only preached half the sermon. I've got, it said they broke bread, that means they had communion. That means the gospel was at the center of who they were. They broke bread together and what? And then it goes on to say, and they ate together. Deliberately, there's a separation between the communion and eating together and smiling together and and enjoying each other's company. I wonder why. Probably because they'd watched Jesus sit around a lot of tables Eating and laughing and talking and being together. When you isolate your Christian faith and you privatize it, it's going to become hard to survive. Because you're taking the oxygen out of your faith. And you know what? Then they prayed. Oh yes, they prayed and we run Willow One. We, we talk about prayer a lot in this church. We, we keep praying, you know, and, and believing that that is a that is, is critical part of who we are. Of course it is. So don't think of it as being humdrum. Think of it as being driven by the power and work of the Holy Spirit.
So what kind of faith are you going to have? Are you going to have a Pharisaic faith where it's all about laws and doing it right and about doing it correctly and if you do it right, like the Pharisees? But that just brings death and religion and we've all been touched by a religiousness that is horrible. Are we going to become a place where it's all about who you know and connected to and whether you're the right family? Absolutely not. Like the Sadducees. Are we going to become militant and angry Christians? That's not our character and our DNA. We are peacemakers. But are we going to take to the hills metaphorically and and wave our, our, our rifles at the world? Or are we going to be people that just hide away in a cave and write a little poetry and never engage in the world? See, Jesus didn't want any of those models. In fact, in Mark chapter 10, I'm just reminded, when they jumped in the boat after the miracle of uh, Mark chapter 9, they jumped in the boat, do you remember this? And, and, and they've just, they're hungry, but they've just fed 4,000. And, and, and they've got bread, and Jesus says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees or Herod's house. In other words, don't build your faith on religion that is dead or on power and politics that corrupts. Build it on these landmarks. Love the word of God. Love the fellowship of the saints. Be generous. Learn to share. Get around the Lord's table. Break bread and eat together. And always be at the prayer meeting. Because Christians are made on their knees. And prayer is magnificent. It is magnificent. Amen. Well, there you go. I enjoyed saying it anyway. (laughs) Amen. Let's stand together. For a moment, this is a listening exercise I'd like you to do this week, to ask the Lord about each of those four areas and what he desires you to do in those four areas and how he desires you to plug in and to get involved. And as we sing this final song before the benediction, We've all got a bit of the Pharisee in us. We've certainly all got a bit of the connected Sadducee. Sometimes there's too much anger in Christianity, and I've seen a lot of anger out there on the net this week. And often, many of us just want to give up and run away to the hills and sit on our own. But God doesn't want you to do any of those things. He wants you to dive into his word to build authentic community, to eat together and break bread and remember the power of the gospel and to pray together. These are the landmarks that make a church great and their number were added to daily because they lived it. 
And I want to say to you, I want to try as best I can to keep modeling those four things for you. To model them because they're correct. And it's the kingdom that was being birthed with those 3,000 baby Christians. Dirty baptism pools and clean hearts. Father, help us to step in to you and to live as you called us to live. And when we do the right things right, things fall into place. And where we don't have it, may we build it in our lives. And may we be the initiators. Thank you, Lord. You are our cornerstone. You are our Lord. And I pray in this final song, your Holy Spirit will fall. It will encourage people. You will whisper to people. You'll talk to them. And give them the instruction of your heart as they move forward, I ask. In Jesus' name. Amen.